Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by The Ocean. I said hi the other day, but it only waved back. Let's dim the lights and start the show. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. <laughs> Today's show is brought to you by Gotham Globe. Get your daily dose of truth for 10 cents. Pick up the Gotham Globe today. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we are coming live to you. Well, it's live to us. I guess it's not really going to be live to you. It's always, always live to us. <laughs> well, I am in New Zealand. I'm recording with the indomitable Joe Howes. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and he works for Weta, and he moved to New Zealand uh, six months ago, I want to say. Yeah, back in May. Back in May. Gosh. And so he extended an invitation for me to come hang out and visit. And so here I am in New Zealand with Todd halfway around the world from the good microphones. <laughs> so he, he Skyped me in. So if he sounds a little uh, less sexy than normal, that's why Impossible. I finally get to have yeah. the good voice this episode. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's weird. So you travel halfway across the world, but it's me that <laughs> sounds like I'm on the other side of the world. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, just uh, by design. I, I get to sort it in the stick. <laughs> by design. <laughs> yeah, that's all right with me. Yeah, it is. Anyway, I'm really excited about today, man. We are going to be covering Birdman. And I want to tell you, everybody, spoiler alert, straight up, if you haven't seen Birdman, pause this, go watch it. Uh, it it'll, it'll be a solid two hours of just hammering your face with acting and then come back here and listen to everything we have to say. Okay. But pause this, go watch it and then come back. Awesome. We're going to talk about a lot of things. We'll talk about the cinematography, obviously stuff like the mirror shots, motivated camera moves, upstage lighting, etc. We'll also talk about themes. Uh, I assume like Todd just said, we'll talk about some of the acting. It seems pertinent. A little bit, just a little bit. <laughs> and other such things and stuff and things. And things and stuff. You know what? I think today we should let Joe read the synopsis just because a couple things, a couple reasons. One, I'm all, you know, telephony sounding. Two, I want to see his beautiful face on Skype. And three, yeah, just a little change of pace here. And you also don't want to pronounce all, right. all these names. That's the real. And, and that too. That oh, no, too. So he always to screws me by like having like 30 names. In naming like you know the chief grip in, in the movie <laughs> take it away joe all right so the synopsis for birdman a washed up superhero actor attempts to revive his fading career by writing directing and starring in a broadway production it was uh, directed by alejandro inyaritu Written by Alejandro, I got it the first time in it. Written by Alejandro Inaritu, uh, Nicholas, wow, Giacebone, Alexandre, uh, or Alexander Dinileres, and Armando Bo, starring Michael Keaton as Riggin, Emma Stone as Sam, Naomi Watts as Leslie, Edward Norton as Mike. Zach Galifianakis as Jake, Andrea Riseborough as Laura, Amy Ryan as Sylvia. You don't get to come in here and pretend you can write, direct, and act in your own propaganda piece without coming through me first. So break a leg. Well, you know, what has to happen in a person's life for them to become a critic anyway? 
What are you writing, another review? Uh, is it any good? Is it? Is it bad? Did you even see this? Let me read it. I will call the well, police. Let me call the police. Let's read you. Callum. Callum's a label. Blackluster. That's just the labels. Margin. Margin. Are you kidding me? It sounds like you need penicillin to clear that up. That's a label too. These are just all labels. You just label everything. That's so fucking lazy. You just. You're a lazy fucker. You're a lazy. Do you know what this is? Do you even know what that is? You don't. You know why? Because. You can't see this thing if you don't know how to label it. You mistake all those little noises in your head for true knowledge. Are you finished? No, I'm not finished. There's nothing in here about technique. There's nothing in here about structure. Nothing in here about intention. It's just a bunch of crappy opinions backed up by even crappier comparisons. You write a couple of paragraphs. And you know what? None of this costs you fucking anything. You risk nothing, 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 nothing. I'm a fucking actor. This play cost me everything. So I'll tell you what, you take this fucking malicious, cowardly, shittily written review, and you shove that right the fuck up your wrinkly, tight ass. Oh, man. Yeah, baby. So, I don't know the last time you saw this, Todd, but wh- give me your like knee-jerk reaction after watching it this last time. I couldn't take my eyes off the screen the entire time. It, it absolutely blew my mind. It, it, I, I think I wouldn't think – I want to say that the last time I saw it was – I didn't see it in the theater. I think I saw it when it first came out, I guess online or something and a year later or something. And, and I was pretty blown away by it then, but something about watching it this time for whatever reason really just hit home. I think maybe because I, I, I didn't have to like analyze it as much. I just kind of like, cause I, I had seen it before. So I kind of just let, let go of everything. And I just kind of watched instead of like waiting for something to happen or, or whatever. So I was able to take in the moments as they came and each, each character's moment of, of when they had their moment to act, you know, to, to like be themselves. Um, cause you know, you'd have Michael Keaton and then Zach Palmanakis would come in and it'd be his moment to shine. And then whomever, where we, I've lost all track of all the names. Oh, Emma Stone would come in and it'd be her moment. And every, everyone had their own little moments. And, and so I was able to like take those in and I, I, I never saw an actor in this movie. Like I felt like every single moment was perfectly portrayed on the screen even the mo- even the moments where they were supposed to not like when they were acting poorly on purpose because it was they were supposed to act poorly because they were on stage poorly acting um it it was it was amazing and uh you know i i know that they the whole point was to do a single shot and and but they still had to elapse time 
in, in certain moments when the camera would pan up and then it would be, it would be daytime. Like, like there would just be an elapsed amount of time instead of cutting, they would find ways to do that. And I thought that was brilliant. And even though I knew where they would cut, um, you know, most of the time I thought it was still really done really well. And, and, uh, the story was, was really beautiful. I, I just, I was totally blown away, man. I, I can't tell you like how happy I was when I finished watching that movie that I, that I loved it even more the second time. Wow. I, you know, I, I don't want to go off on a soapbox, yeah. but I mean, out of 10, I'm going to give it a 10. I mean, I, I can't find anything wrong with it. And, and even the things that I find wrong with it, I totally forgive because of of the, I, I just felt like every single person that you saw on screen or that you felt on screen from, you know, the direction to the, the lighting, to the camera work was all 100% from every single person that touched this film. And I could feel it on the screen. And so I just can't, I can't give it any less than a 10, man. One of the things, so I kind of watched this one and a half times, Joe was watching it and I was just kind of popping in and out, um, doing other things. And one of the first scenes that really struck me was when Edward Norton comes in, uh, Mike Shiner comes in and he's doing his first read through and we're all actors here. All three of us are actors. Joe is the most talented among us. Um, (laughs) definitely think so. And I was kind of beside myself and I want to get your take on this, Joe. What have you ever been on set before as an actor and, one of your co-stars starts giving you direction. Um, how do you feel about that? Um, and yeah, what's your, you... well, it's, it's funny cause I've been in a play before where there is an actor who's more experienced than me, who's better than me, uh, in every way. And I've had it where there's a better actor than me. Who's all about, uh, you know, bringing the other people up. We're all in this together doesn't matter where we each are in our journey let's make a great play and then there's other people who take their talent and wield it like a cudgel you know there's some kind of insecurity going on uh mike shiner's character here is such a hilarious exaggeration of of the latter because from his first introduction he's standing at the microphone and he's wearing that that fucking scarf that real actors wear. like it, the costume is that real actor costume he's got that actor hat on and he takes it off and he knows not only his lines he knows Riggins lines he has he can rewrite on the spot as they go and there's one scene where it's like I think they purposefully confuse the audience is he uh is he in the play or is he shitting on Reagan <laughs> yeah. or is he rewriting the dialogue? It all kind of blends together. And and that kind of happens when you're kind of a less experienced actor and someone comes at you with that, uh, uh, you know, with that level of, you know, just kind of just kind of shittiness. It's mm. it's bewildering. And you just feel, you know, your job as an actor is to be vulnerable. And this movie really explores that. And, uh, you know, you're supposed to be vulnerable on stage and this explores how vulnerable a creative is in all aspects of their lives. You know, you're, ri- you're literally risking everything. If, if you want to be an actor, you got to do it full time and there's not a lot of money and you're giving up a lot of security and stability and you have to 
live with the fact that nobody gives a shit about that. All that matters is, you know, we're here, we paid for a ticket, here we are now, entertain us, kind of a thing, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, so, yeah, Mike, Mike, I think, is just a hilarious uh, exaggeration of that. And I think they really nail the feeling of it because you really feel for Riggin that he's done all this preparation. He's clearly an experienced actor, but he stepped out of his comfort zone, so that's admirable. And this guy walks in, and you can't deny that this guy isn't better. He's more capable. He's got the name. He can sell tickets. That's uh, so true. And I think it's funny because... I, that's kind of my impression of Edward Norton anyway. Yeah. I've always heard these stories about him going and rewriting someone else's script that he's neither written nor directing. <laughs> and suddenly as an really? actor, he's just completely taking over someone's film. And that's caused him to lose projects. And and it's – I don't know how I, – I mean I know how I feel about that specifically. I, it drives me insane as a creator who's – you know, trying to direct somebody. If I'm on set and I'm trying to direct and an actor's trying to give me notes on directing, that's going to be, that's tough. I mean, you're also guarding your set atmosphere because even though maybe they're being, you know, uh, destructive in some way, you can't go over the top and be more destructive. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That's not going to help your set. Yeah. But at the other, on the other hand, there's, there's times I've, I had a actress recently that I'd cast in this really well-paid project and she kind of checked out through the whole process. Like we had two rehearsals and uh, she was only kind of there mentally. She didn't come to set prepared and just a number of kind of these issues kind of kept springing up. And I was like, okay, I would not, I would actually deal with all of that if she had actually turned in a badass performance. So on the one hand, I can sit here and say, Mike Shiner drives me crazy and I would never hire him. But on the other hand, I probably would because he's a really great he actor. He delivers. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so... And and even like the note that he gives about uh, the redundancy, these four lines, they all say the yes. same thing. Yes. Just say everything with one line and Riggin can't deny that that's a fucking great note yeah. and I feel like shit because I wrote those lines. Because at the end of the day, that's all you want, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's the it's the um, the best idea wins kind of mentality, and I think it it, it takes a, a it takes a really you have to be secure in yourself as a creator to be able to either either you know collaborate with someone that you know or that you don't know in making something that's been your baby better because it can always be better. I, I mean, the best writer will tell you that. You know, they've rewritten something 30 times. Well, what makes the 30th the best? It could be the 31st or the 32nd. It can always be better. And so bringing in somebody, it's like saying, Wes, it's like saying you wrote a screenplay and we, we got Matthew McConaughey to play the, the main part, right? Well, Matt comes in and he says, well, and he makes a few changes and he's, you know, in the same exact way. Do not tell me that you wouldn't be like, do whatever you want, Matt. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't, you probably wouldn't be like that. No, I know yeah, you, I, but, you would, but I would listen to him. I would say, yes, it doesn't make more sense than what I have right now. Yeah. Um, because right. having those fresh eyes and that, that goes, I think with any project, whether you're uh, writing code, building a website or making a film, having someone else step yeah. in and say, oh yeah, I see what you're trying to do here. Editing is in itself an art form 
being able to but look to at ta- someone and, else. <laughs> yes, yes. And and to take it back though to the actual movie and what Michael Keaton's character was experiencing at that time. So you know, he's under so much pressure and he's he's fucked up, man, you know, like in every single way mentally. He's just totally screwed up. And he lost his his main actor and now he's got the opportunity and he, so he was he was like totally destroyed. And now he has this opportunity with this amazing actor that he looks up to as an actor who's going to come in and basically save his entire career. <laughs> uh, Mike Shiner could come in and take a shit on the table and say, that is the art. That's that's what we need to do in this play. And he would say, let's do it. That's because <laughs> he's so desperate. He's so desperate to have a success, to make this a success because he's put everything into it that he's w- in way more of a, uh, of a, of a pressure scenario that he has to keep Mike Shiner happy. He has to keep him interested and, and this is, keep in mind, this is the first interaction he's had with him. Obviously they end up not liking each other later on, uh, and getting in a fight and everything. So, you know, he doesn't take all the shit, but at first he would have let him do anything. And it's a funny right? wrestling game because you, he does battle, you know, fire this guy, get rid of him. I don't care. You know, just, just do it. Uh, but obviously he doesn't and he stays around and it is that angry moment. I think all of us have those moments of initial anger and outrage followed by, yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and what's interesting, um, and I, not to get off the topic, I'm not, um, I don't think I am really because it also involves Mike, but how many protagonists do you have in this film? I mean, right. I think everyone is yeah. everyone, yeah. right? I mean, in some way, I think the only one who isn't is his ex-wife mm-hmm. who shows up and is, is like almost like she's almost like the reprieve from all of this attacking that he's getting. Even even Zach Galifianakis's character, the, the manager, in some ways is a protagonist because he's just keeps pushing this thing forward, obviously, because it's it's been the dream to happen and it's his job to make it happen. But it seems like his wife who shows up is the, the only reprieve I really feel as a viewer, uh, throughout the whole movie. I mean, do you guys feel the same or is there? No, I think you're right. I mean, I'm sure if we were to analyze, um, every single character, each one of them represents some different part of the theme that they're exploring. And, by the way, we're in uh, Miramar, which is right next to Wellington Airport. So you're going to hear some <laughs> planes taking off. Awesome. And it's, it's yeah, it's amazing just because it's so well thought out. And I didn't, like, whenever I start to explore a theme and story here in a few, I don't have every one of these characters kind of fleshed out. Um, obviously, Mike Shiner is exploring truth. and But everyone here is amazing. But I think my favorite personally, just because he's playing against type, is Zach Galifianakis. Like I've never, I don't remember ever seeing him play, you know, a straight man like that. He's always playing some kind of ham-fisted character, and it was just great because so many comedians, when you give them a chance, have some really great dramatic chops, man. If if we didn't learn that from Adam Sandler and Robin Williams, then maybe we're just not going to learn that lesson. <laughs> well, and Galifianakis even he brings a little bit of his goofiness to that straight character, yeah. and he does it yeah. just 
ex- you know, one of the gifts of comedians is perfect timing, mm-hmm. and he chooses his moments. And you know, when he when the phone rings and he answers it, <laughs> uh, the premiere night. So yeah, he, he playing against type, but man, he really knows how to use his comedy. He knows his stuff, man. So let me dive real quick into a few things, like the cinematography. God, I mean, there's so many. I'll I'll link a few articles because this has been broken down so many other times. People far better than me. Um, And there's just so many uh, interviews out there to glean exactly what they did. But the things that I noticed, uh, like the mirror shots. So from a practical level, they were literally, I think they dressed the, uh, the camera op in black. And then they just comped out everything in the mirror. And except for the reflections of the actors and then uh, recomped in a two, two and a half D is what they kept saying, uh, version of the back. So it's all matted in. It's just a matte painting that's very, very sophisticated. Mm -hmm. Um, But aside from that, the one thing that they keep doing, which everybody I think knows at this point, like a mirror shot is usually going to be a reflection of who we really are. There's a version of us that we're presenting to the world, but in film, the cinematic language, whenever you're looking at someone, you know, in front of you and the reflection in the mirror is we're usually looking at who they really are. It's like in, you know, any famous song, a Michael Jackson song, you know, I'm looking at the man in the mirror It's saying you're looking at who you really are. This is reality. This isn't what I'm presenting to the world. This is me looking into myself. And so reflections are always a really good way whenever we're seeing that. Those moments usually are trying to get at something deeper about this character, like who's there's a facade and who are they really? And sometimes it can be like in a spy movie, right? It's oh, the reflection, they're they're a double agent or whatever. This Mm -hmm. can be a simple way to kind of convey these uh, layered meanings of a person's personality and character. But in this case, obviously, we're getting a little bit more truthy because this whole film is kind of diving into truth, reality, the nature of existence, blah, 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 which I will less blah later in a second. <laughs> but the other thing I really liked about the uh, the mirror shots is the way they lit it. They do a lot of what uh, I I have termed or at least deemed from other cinematographers uh, upstage lighting because they light more from the mirror side. And that, for one, helps you sell some of the practicals that they use. And I think some of those practicals are actually giving you life. And whenever, I guess I should uh, declare a few things here, a practical is a light that's in the shot. Even if that light isn't actually helping light the scene, that's that's a practical. Um, And upstage lighting is basically lighting that's coming into the the camera instead of from the camera side. And so it's upstage. um, And if you think it, it might even be more useful in this context because upstage is away from the audience. So if you think of and Joe, you do way more theater than I do. But (laughs) is that accurate? Like upstage is uh, the furthest away from the audience and downstage is closest to the audience. Absolutely. And then it's the opposite for camera up camera. And yeah. down camera are the opposite. Nice. Yeah. And so, yeah, not confusing at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so upstage lighting is you're putting the light furthest away from the camera so that all the shadows are getting into the camera and adding dimension and depth and texture to your scene. Because if you light everything from the camera's view, then everything is getting the same amount of light and it's making everything very, very flat. And so lighting from uh further away from the camera adds all these shadows and textures and dimensions. But the other nice thing about that 
is it also hides the shadows from your camera operator who's running around through all these long one takes. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's really hard to do. These long wonders that they're doing requires so much like choreography and ballet almost, right? Because if you if you're thinking about uh the shadows of a camera operator creeping into your scene. Well, if you're walking down a hallway, now you might need to have like an electrician or a gaffer like activating hallway lighting as at a very specific point so that that downstage lighting or uh, isn't catching the camera operator's shadow and showing the boom mic, <laughs> you know, onto your actor. That ruins a little something we like to call the suspension of disbelief. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, um, choosing to do a oneer is a really brave choice here because you're gaining immersion, but you're sacrificing so many nice things that come with cutting. There are no overs in this. Uh, uh, by over, I mean over the shoulder, where you're looking at an actor's face, but you see the head and the shoulder of the actor they're talking to, and it's that's a really good way to situate the audience. You really risk confusing the audience so they don't know where they are in the scene and nothing makes sense. Uh, but they they really, really carefully choreographed those shots and they used sound quite a bit. There were times where they went from a single to a two shot and they uh, foretold that a two shot was coming because you heard a character off screen and then the character will look at them and then the camera moves and now we're in a two shot with Edward Norton and mm-hmm. uh, Michael Keaton uh, talking at the same time. And uh, that really helps ground you, the audience member, where you are in space. Heck yeah. And to double down on that, I really love the use of the mirror to create a two shot. Later mm-hmm. in the film, whenever Naomi Watts' character, who is named Leslie, when Leslie walks in and she's having, you know, this really big issue, she walks into a reflection of Michael Keaton, which was really cool because he's just kind of barely in the corner, but they frame it so well that the eyeline holds perfectly true. You can tell he's looking at her and she's looking at him. And then they're still able to push into a close up of her dramatic, like as she's dealing with all her issues with Mike and God knows what else. And it's all just uh, so scary. And it's also taxing. Like, as a viewer, watching all this wonder can be very exhausting for a viewer because it is so immersive and you don't really know when to blink. That's one of the nice things about edits. It kind of gives you permission to blink and close your eyes when everything is just in continuous motion. You don't feel like you ever get to move away or look away because you don't know what you're going to miss next. And it's it's bold and it's exhausting at the same time. Like, Mm -hmm. it's one of the things that keeps me from watching this is it's technically and written beautifully and it's all just masterful work but hell if it doesn't like take the gas out of me (laughs) yeah no kidding (laughs) but the cool thing that they do through that is they do all this amazing world building through the hidden scale because now you can walk down a hallway and suddenly there's a crowd right he's he goes out for a smoke break And then he turns around and realizes the door just closed on him. Um, And we went from this small, intimate moment to now we're in Times Square and there's a thousand people all around us yelling. And and then we go back in and now the crowd is there and you really feel like you're inhabiting New York in those moments because of just that simple and probably really pain in the ass burden of building out like 
I'm sure it wasn't hard to get Times Square full of people. If you can keep it from getting people, that's more amazing. Yeah. But, but yeah. you know, getting the patience from the crowd and uh, timing all that with the performances, Jesus. And same way, like in the end, right, they, the hospital hallway, suddenly there's paparazzi. We've been spending this nice, close, intimate moment between Birdman, Riggin, and uh, his loved ones. And then we creep out into the hallway and suddenly there's, you know, 50 paparazzos hanging out there. And it's just a simple, great way to continuously sell the world and the immersion and all the things that you want out of a dis suspension of disbelief, especially when using the one or Jesus, man. Yeah. Lastly, on cinematography, the, the camera moves are almost always motivated. And I just mean that there's actions that are cueing this. Like, so many other movies, J.J. Uh, Abrams is, to me, the, the horse I like to beat dead on this. He will constantly just move the camera without a reason to move the camera. And it's like the camera cues the action instead of the inverse. Spielberg, on the other hand, always lets the action cue the camera movement. So you never really realize the camera is actually moving. You're just tracking someone else. And in my mind, I always call this call this like passing it off like a baton in a relay race you're just kind of passing it off and if you were just tracking with that baton through the relay race you don't really notice all the hands that it's you know changing through but in this in this movie we're constantly you know someone might walk through the frame and instead of staying with uh mike and leslie we're suddenly now following the uh the the dressmaker guy what yeah the costume the, costumer yeah yeah and now we're we're tracking with him and then we, he passes through Riggin you know having a conversation and we're gonna hang out there they've used that motion as an excuse to just pan left and it's so simple but it's so effective in helping us have a reason to do a thing instead of and because if you don't especially especially in this movie if you don't have a reason to move the camera we get caught up in the camera trick and you don't want people despite yeah. this being one long camera trick you don't want people thinking about oh man this is one cool camera trick you want people caught up in the story and you can't do that if mm -hmm. you're constantly making up you know weird excuses to move the camera it's like no we're just following action around now there you don't need an excuse and through the whole thing they uh like they there was a lot of camera movement that had to happen because they hid cuts in the whips so mm -hmm. when the camera turns that's a great time you put a cut there you do a little bit of crossfade and now you're you're on a different shot and it was awesome because uh you know Sometimes they went completely absurdist with those whips. Now, oh, my God, there's a guy playing a drum set <laughs> here and then whip back. Or sometimes it was, you know, in the world, there's an electrician doing something, uh, you know, funny in the hallway. Uh, but they never made it just for no reason. The camera is mm -hmm. moving like even that one where they panned down and it was, you know, there's a there's kind of a pace that they pan uh, through the film. After I think it's the premiere night and they pan down and there's just that empty hallway yep. and we're just going to sit and look at an empty hallway for a minute. Listening to the play finish. Yeah, there, there's a motivation there. It's one of those shots where we're lingering too long. And so we're begging the audience, consider this hallway. Think about what you just saw and consider what this hallway means now. It's and a nice chance to just take a break and kind of reset. Yeah. So I have a quick question for you guys, and I have my own opinion, but I'm curious what y'all think. Uh, I'll start with you, Joe. Why do you think that Inaratu decided to do a single shot for this film? 
Why do you think he wanted to attempt that? I, I think at a surface level, he thought this is about uh, a, a risky play. This is about a play. And the closest yeah. a camera can come to being play-like is a one because we don't cut when we're watching a play. We have light fades. Uh, you know, the difference, obviously, is that in a play, you get to look wherever the hell you want. With cinema, you're looking where the camera tells you. But I have a feeling that... He chose that because not only is it play like, but he also want he's discussing what is the life of a here. It's an actor, but I think this applies generally to any creative that the life on stage and the life behind the stage are one for an actor. Uh, and so I think the camera really emphasizes that, you know, when Mike and uh, Naomi Watts character come out to take their bows, they're fighting, then they bow, then they walk off stage and they're back to fighting again that there's just this fluidity between the onstage and the offstage life that I think cutting might make that uh, point a little less easy to make to the audience. Doing it as a one I think, worked. Yeah. And I yeah. think it was risky choice because it might not have worked. <laughs> oh, God, no. Yeah. And I think all of that, I agree with all of that. I would add on to that, you know, especially reflecting the story is – it's interesting because how do you get people to watch your movie if it isn't a superhero movie, right? There's just <laughs> running commentary about uh, superhero and social media and kind of the uh, the fall of civilization um, that Mike Shiner so eloquently coined cultural genocide. Um, and how do you do that? Well, you wow them. How do you get someone to sit through a play? You wow them on a technical level that they have to see this. It's it's circus. It's a circus trick. We're going to get people in here and we're going to uh, abuse them in a way that they're not expecting because they came for the trick, but they're going to get punched in the face with reality. And any to me, any great play is kind of going to give you a little bit of a, a punch in the nose about life and meaning. And it's a very deep experience. And People don't show up for dramas, you know, <laughs> but they'll yeah. show up for, oh, you know, there's this spectacle. Well, now let's make a drama a spectacle and we'll get people to watch it that way. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I, I was I was thinking the same thing that Joe said. I was just I wanted to make sure that I wasn't the only one that thought that because <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the, what, totally the feeling that I got. I didn't even think about it the first time I saw it. I just thought, man, this is a cool attempt at something that, you know, is really difficult. And maybe that's why he wanted to do it because it was hard. Right. And, you know, as a, as a creative who has made movies, knows how to make a movie, you know, you want to think outside the box and do something different that nobody's ever done before. Okay, well let's try this shit. Um, and so that's what I had thought the first time I saw it, but this time I totally got the play reference it and just, you know, and the fact that life never stops and, and so neither should the camera and the camera keeps going. And even though it, it might be focused on one person, it, it's still, life is still rolling for every character in here. And so, um, it, it, yeah, it was definitely the, the play aspect of it. And so I just wanted to, to see what Joe thought. Yeah. And it was, it was a motivated choice too. You, you could make this yeah. decision just, Hey, let's try a whole movie as one and see what happens. It was, I, I'm, I am glad though. I'm glad though, Wes, that you, you mentioned about the, um, the motivated camera movement, because I, I didn't really realize that while I was watching it, but now that you say it, it's, it's very obvious and it's, it's, 
something I've found out just from you saying that, that I I like, I, I definitely prefer, you know, the camera following the actual action rather than the other way around the camera ending up a place. And then the action happens, you know, like it's, it just feels a little bit more real, a little bit more fly on the wall, a little bit more immersive in the, in a, in a, in a film like this or, or, you know, just a film shot this way. I think, I mean, his other, other films feel like that as well. So I don't think it's just for this movie. Um, I think it's just kind of a style thing and I'd never noticed that before. So that's cool. That's awesome. Um, to dive a little bit into theme and story, the, they, I mean, they talk about a lot of things and it's to me just interesting in context of art and creatives, um, like y'all have been talking about. I love that they kind of deal with performance anxiety in a weird way. You know, um, on the one hand, you're seeing Regan dealing with it and he is just losing his mind. Um, but on the other hand, you're also seeing, uh, Mike Shiner deal with it and, in private, you know, he can't be excited about anything, but on stage, right. Suddenly he can get an erection, whereas he can't have sex in his private life right now. And that's a brutal thing because everyone I think deals with, you know, performance anxiety in their own individual way. And like, I've never thrown up before a game or, uh, before doing a take, but what will happen in, in sports it was always super easy for me to deal with any kind of, you know, stress about playing. Cause once you're in the game, you get one hit and it's whatever you're in the moment. You can't do that with acting and acting my struggle. I can't just physically overcome, you know, my anxiety because now my voice is locking up. I've had to really start to figure out how does my body work and how, how can I just not shove all this shit down anymore? I have to start thinking about how everything affects me from a physical level so that I can control that and begin to master that. And it's, what's happening to you is happening to your character too. Mm. It, it, you know, you have to just accept that, that my character has a hiccups. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> That's very much a yes and situation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Put a little bit of yourself into every bit of every character. Um, I also love that they're talking a lot about the cost of success as an artist. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, this whole movie is revolving around just that concept from a macro level. When you're talking about Birdman, you're actually talking about Keaton and Batman. Mm-hmm. And his career really took a hit because that was who he was for years and years and years. And I, and then he does Birdman and suddenly he's Keaton again. Mm-hmm. How, I mean, that's just so ironic and, you know, poetic because I mean, if you haven't seen spotlight or founder, I mean, he is still such a terrific actor who is yeah. wholly invested in every part. I've seen other great actors who phone it in. I don't know that I've seen Keaton phone it in. Um, And just to throw someone under the bus as an example, uh, Harrison Ford phones it in all the time. Oh, God, yeah. All the time. And he's an amazing actor, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean he's always going to show up. Keaton certainly deserved, you know, this moment again. Um, Because they're talking about, you know, how success and fame can ironically make you invisible. Because now you're just this one thing. Um, but they're also talking about the dumbing down of audience desires. Uh, they, ha- Especially at the beginning, they're having this great commentary about superhero movies taking all these great actors. Well, give me Jeremy Renner. He's in the Avengers movie. Like, He's an Avenger. <laughs> yeah. And everyone that he wants to work with is now in a hero movie. And it's like, well, good God, man. You know, what are we doing here? And then, of course, the... Uh, 
the social media relevancy that his daughter is trying to get him to pay attention to. But I love that Mike Shiner in in his dickish way is yelling at the audience, put your phones down, have a real experience. <laughs> yeah. He's bitching at the audience that, who paid to be there. Yeah. <laughs> That's so great. There, there's a thing that occurred to me, and I, I wonder if you'd come along with me on uh, on this thought, <laughs> that there's, a, there's kind of a... I, th- I think the director is making a little bit of a commentary about what do we really want as artists because we say we want to create art, we want to affect people, we want to affect change, but adoration is awfully nice and it's awfully tempting. And, uh, you know, the, so with, with, with Riggins' career trajectory, so stand-up comedians will do this thing. You hear stand-up comedians often say that they'll lob a bomb on the audience. So they'll, they'll have the audience on their side and then they'll lose them on purpose. And if you can get them back, that's the high. That's where a comedian is really. And if you can't get them back, well, that was a funny <laughs> that man. I bombed and I just couldn't get out of it. Uh, Riggins career. I don't think he threw a bomb. He just did what a lot of actor careers do, just kind of naturally fall off. But he's definitely looking for that comeback. And he doesn't want it. He, the, the easy thing for him is just be Birdman again. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, I'm going to be honest. I'm going to create great art and I'm going to soar again because of that. And he he does, but he does he does the spectacle. He becomes a social uh, media viral hit, and I know he doesn't start flying, you know, in the kind of fantastical world until he becomes a social media hit, walking naked through Times Square, and then at the end he really he soars when he's shot his face off and now he's a viral hit and this play is going to last forever mm. in New York, not necessarily on the strength of its artistic vision, but because this, the story is this artist is so into his art that he blew his own face off in a moment of honesty. I've got to, I've got to see this. And that's when he flies. And I kind of, you know, that, that very last scene where, uh, where, uh, Sam looks up and sees him, she wanted him to be a social media star all along. Now he is. And so he's flying and she's taking that in. What's great about that shot specifically, this was the movie that first got me to notice first and last frames. Someone stitched together, I Mm -hmm. think, all the Best Picture nominations, and they just did that. First frame, last frame, and they juxtaposed them right next to each other. And the first frame is that that. that comet, meteor, that yep. meteor streaking through the sky, and that last frame is her looking up into the sky. And so you put those images together, and suddenly you're telling a story, and it's a really interesting story because it gets into my big rant of the <laughs> year. <laughs> because what is this film really about? And wait, hang on, I need to go get my charger. My my computer's gonna die. Okay, before you start your rant, because I don't want to stop you. Okay. Hang on a second. All right. <laughs> So what are we talking about? I think a lot of things and nothing at the same time. If we go back to the very before the first shot, the quote, and did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so I did. And what did you want to call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth? And then we fast forward into the film. And what does his ex-wife Sylvia say? You confuse love for admiration which is obviously a condemnation of our social media lives and the things that we confuse love for um, in a number of ways. But 
Then I think it gets really interesting throughout the film. We keep hearing this. I don't exist. Nothing. And even the the homeless guy on the street, which is kind of this cliche way of, you know, the end of the world is at hand kind of guy. And he's doing this monologue just for Reagan. And he's making all these comments about how much of nothing we are. But Sam says it best whenever she unfolds her toilet paper with all those dashes on it. And she says, this is all humanity has to show for it. And what she says is, I think they're trying to remind us that's all our ego and self-obsession are worth. And it's so perfect because of, for one, it is it does on a cosmic scale give you an idea of your existence. It doesn't even make up a dash. And then on the other hand, it's on a piece of toilet paper. Like, it, what do you do with that? You know, that's on a very nihilistic cosmic scale we don't even exist. There's that meteor that's falling that she's looking at. And if she represents the, the voice of admiration and social media presence, then is that really a falling star that they're trying to allude to, right? Riggin is now a shooting star. He's something amazing. I don't think it is. I think it's a fucking comet that is our cultural genocide that is coming to destroy everything and anything, we're destroying ourselves in the most artistic way possible. And so what are we talking about? What are we on a cosmic scale? We are nothing. So what, is it, what does it really mean? Well, what are we talking about when we talk about love? Well, maybe love is the only thing that really matters. That's the, and the great irony I think about that is that it's intangible. It's the one thing you can't touch, you can't see, you, you can only feel. And it's the one thing that connects you with one person to another. And it's the only thing you can never measure. There's no metric. And I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about love. It's the only thing that gives us a reason to exist. It's the only thing that makes us something. Yep. The end. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ooh. I love that. Man. I just wanted to say also that uh, the guy on the street who's just, that's uh, Macbeth, he's quoting. And it's so yeah. funny because uh, they kind of set up this expectation that, you know, Riggin's going to hear someone reciting Macbeth and it's going to be this moment. It turns out the guy just knew who he was and was trying to impress him with his Shakespeare. <laughs> Again, just a surface level appreciation of Shakespeare. Does that like, like confuse you though? Because I mean, okay. From what you were just, just a little bit, uh, uh, touching on what you were talking about, you know, so he, there's this war going on with Friggin throughout this movie. And he, where you think he wants admiration, he wants, you know, people to, you know, uh, love him, admire him or, or whatever in some capacity, but they do, you know? So I'm, con I'm a little confused because, you know, people are like when they go to the bar, when he and Mike go to the bar and the lady asks Mike to take the picture of them, of, of Riggin with her, which is awesome because he had just said that he's the one that owns the city and then she wants to take a picture with, with Riggin. Like she wants to take a picture with him. He's the famous guy. And the, the, the guy reciting Shakespeare, you know, in the, in the street, like he was doing that for Riggin. Everyone who saw him running through the, through, you know, uh, Times Square with, in his underwear was like, Oh my God, 
that's Birdman. Like that's the guy. Yep. Like so when when she says you can you confuse when his ex-wife says you confuse love with admiration, which is a great line by the way, and which we all do um, constantly. Uh, like even when, when we know we're doing it, what is it that he really wants out of this? He wants, is it a legacy? Is it like, like more than what he already fucking has, which is more 90%, more than 99% of all of us. Is he just like a gluttonous character that wants more or, or is he really wanting people to see what he what he really actually has, which is, which is a a different layer than just bird. I, I don't know, but just the fact that everybody that sees him, that's not part of the the actual play that he's putting on is like, Holy shit, that's Birdman! Oh my God. I want to be near you. I want to be close to you. I want to, you know, want to have a little bit of, you you know, there's a little star fucking going on there where they just want to have a little bit rub off on them. No one does that to me. No one does that to, to you, Wes. Like, it just doesn't happen. And so when do you say, dude, you fucking got it, man. Well, what are you trying – like, why are you so destroyed? That's so funny. I remember having this conversation with you a long time ago. And I was just curious what you felt about One Hit Wonders. And I asked you, I said, would you want to be a One Hit Wonder – or nothing at all like and at the time you were like hell yeah like that just to have a moment like that that would be amazing you know and there's and I I love that about you and I don't think I could I would be 30 times worse than Riggin if I only became known for a thing and then every time I went out in public someone only recognized me for that thing I'm in the middle he's in the middle Riggin is in the middle of trying to create his legacy all over again and to relabel himself and all people do is keep reminding him who he is and it's like <laughs> inflaming his inner demon right that's saying just go back to being bird man <laughs> like what are you doing stop yeah. kicking against the grain <laughs> i mean i i and i i appreciate that i and i appreciate that but i just i feel like like man there there need what is a what is a legacy really like you just said we're nothing in cosmic scale we are nothing so who who gives a shit about a legacy my legacy is my children and even they won't be forever you know like there is no uh, okay michael jackson won't even have have a legacy in a thousand years nobody's gonna be i I don't know maybe he will i don't know but like that's a upper esh like, and who cares? Yeah, he's not around anymore. Like it, it's you only have the now, and if you're going to spend it like, like, like Riggin does, you know, I'm not saying it's a bad thing what he's doing. The, this this push, this fight to be great, to be to do something awesome, to do something you think is is it should be noticed. I think we all should do that. And no matter what success you have, you know, if, if I wrote like a, a, a pop hit that was ex- amazing, like huge. And then I just fell off the face of the earth musically. Like I, I, I still, and I still wanted to make music. I would still make music and I would still push myself to do something different, but like he is just completely destroyed. 
I think know? that's also maybe there's like a hundred things you could apply the parenthetical of the title because it's not just Birdman. It's yeah. Birdman, oh, no, you're right. The unexpected uh, virtue of ignorance. And yeah. maybe there is a virtue in having never tasted fame. He got that taste and now it's crack. He can't get away from or it. The, or the ignorance of the ignorance of uh, thinking that that he needs this legacy. Yeah. Or that he like I I think I am more than Birdman. I I I am I have this thing or whatever that's going to last for fucking ever. And it's totally ignorant that it won't, but it's it's it because of that he puts everything into this and it becomes a success because he blows his face off because it's like it's he puts literally 100% of himself into it and yeah. so it becomes this huge thing. So yeah. And and I wonder after I don't know all the good creatives I know no matter where they get to they have to go further and they have to go more you know uh, unless they can happily retire which is, <laughs> is certainly admirable but it's it's hilarious when you know at the end of the film when Birdman's sitting on the toilet and the last thing he says is bye bye and fuck you <laughs> because we're just on to the next thing and then ten years from then. Oh, yeah. I don't want to be known as the guy who blew my face off. God damn. I, I got to do it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. There's always that like, Oh, I'm not that guy. Yeah. Well, you were that guy. Be happy. You were that guy. Cause <laughs> nobody else could ever be that guy. You're the only one. That's so, awesome. Um, maybe that's the ignorance. I don't know. Maybe it is, but it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fun having these discussions. Cause like, you know, that you saying, you know, in, in the cosmic scheme of things, we are nothing like it's so, I think the essence of this, that little phrase that you, that you said, because we really are nothing. I mean, and in all the stuff that we do, it, it shouldn't take away from effort and it shouldn't take away from, from, you know, what you want to accomplish and do. Um, but it should really put in perspective what you're doing, you know, like, what we all do, um, in the grand scheme of things, if you are either unsuccessful or, you know, you fail at doing it, um, you do it, but it falls flat or, or whatever, like you can pick yourself up because it really, and in the end doesn't matter in the moment it might feel like it does, but anyway, that's awesome. Yeah. I don't. I I, I want to go up on soapbox and I won't because we're probably at two hours right now. Yeah. <laughs> so last thoughts, Joe. Uh, I wanted to say, you know, visual effects. I have to make a comment about one visual effect Please that do. I, I really think was used to elevate the storytelling rather than being flashy. Is there's uh, you know one shot where we're out on the on the street and we do a recede. Uh, all the way into Riggins' dressing room in the theater, and we recede through a little grate on his window that's, you know, the, the area that we recede through is impossibly small. You could never get any camera through there. And then through the actual window, which is also super small. Uh, and obviously those were, those were CG elements, and so they did a, a, you know, a motion match between the camera on set and the virtual camera in a virtual environment. Uh, and it's, it's not that tough a shot to set up in this day and age, but it really going through that little, uh, that little metallic grate takes you from the outer world to now we're in the inner world. And it really helps. There's like this intimacy to it. It's like a peeking through the keyhole kind of a feeling. And then when we're, when we're in Riggins dressing room, now it feels like we've seen this outside and now we're back into the inner workings of his life, the private 
shit that none of us would ever want anybody to see, but that, uh, you know, M Michael Keaton, you know, it's, and it speaks to the vulnerability of the artist, too. Michael Keaton with his off-kilter shoulders at the beginning oh. and his underwear, and it smells like balls, and he takes his hair off to reveal how much Michael Keaton, the actor, is balding. So that little visual effect, uh, I, I think, really elevated that we're really seeing into the gross, nitty-gritty back, uh, you know, uh, uh, backdrop that, you know, Riggin Thompson would never want us to see. Yeah. <laughs> Badass. Any others? Um, I think that's about all the, the notes. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, uh, I think most of the other visual effects just served the cutting, you know, helping yeah. hide cuts, whip cuts. And, yeah. you know, uh, uh, someone would walk across the camera and there mm, you do a little, little wipe, wipe, wipe yep. cut. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. So I know you gave it a, a straight up 10. I've debated because the rewatchability for me is so low that from a technical and everything, I, I want to give it like an eight or a nine. But I'm like, man, watching this really takes it out of me. And so I'm probably like a seven and a half. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this is this is one of the first times we are like off. Way man. off. Yeah. <laughs> God, I could watch this movie once a week. Wow. I really could. Like, I keep finding stuff, you know, I, I, I found so much more the next time I watched it. And I know the next time I watch it, I'll find more. This is little things, Easter eggs. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found it pretty rewatchable. Um, I, I'm, I'm sitting at about a nine myself, nice. I, I think. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, there's it says a lot of stuff directly to me. There, I, I overheard some people talking about this film and it's, oh, it's Hollywood looking at itself again. Oh, isn't it so hard to be an artist? But it, it, it really speaks to me that that the scene where he is talking to his wife and he's admitting that he tried to kill himself and found himself surrounded by jellyfish. And the only audio that isn't dialogue is just this clock in the ah. background. And I'm I'm 48 years old. And I feel like I've I've done nothing and time is ticking and I'm going to die soon. I'm not going to be here very long. Whenever that scene comes up, it, it, it chokes me up because that is, uh, you know, the same thing. He's just talking about I've screwed my life up. I've made wrong decisions. And, uh, and just that he, clock ticking really gets to me. And it's so perfect, too. I mean, timing wise, because that lets us know where he's capable of going as he walks out on stage and tries to shoot himself in the mm -hmm. head. Yeah, those are butted right up against each other, and you really believe, oh my God, was that it? And so it really does hang you out to dry. Like maybe he accomplished what he couldn't before. Yeah, and and then you know, because I have it, it, the fact that it kind of has a happy ending too. It yeah. helps pull me out of the doldrums. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that's why I find it kind of rewatchable in that way. So yeah, that's awesome. So what? Was he actually flying at the end? Um, metaphorically, yeah. <laughs> I, I, metaphorically. I think metaphorically. Yeah, I, I don't think they intended that to be literal at all. But I've seen... But she looks around, doesn't see... I mean, I don't... <laughs> I don't, I don't know how to explain. I don't know. Is there a big baby floating in space? I don't know. Yeah, I, don't, I, I think within the inner reality of, my, of Riggin Thompson's head, he is flying and his daughter is watching him fly out the window. Uh, you know, and obviously in this fantastical reality, 
this this film blurs what's going on in Riggins' head with what's actually happening around him, and they do it to such great effect. Mm -hmm. So the way I choose to see that is that this is how he sees it, and I've finally gotten Sam to look up to me kind of a thing. Oh, wow. And in, in his mind, like, there have been times... In my adult life, maybe even while you've been here visiting me, where I've thought, oh, it'd be so cool. I'd just make move that with my hand. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I have these fantasies about myself all the time. So That's awesome. Yeah. I like it. I like it. So, cool. um, recommendation for the week. I really debated. I was so close to recommending Dark Passage. It's an old Humphrey Bogart film with Lauren Bacall. Uh, because there's some really amazing technical feats that they're doing, and this is from, I don't know, maybe the 40s or 50s. And it really harkens to this film. Like, there's some wonders in there that you have a guy looking into a mirror, but you don't see the camera. It's just a point of view shot, and you just see the guy looking back at you. It's like, how the hell did they do that? So they have all these really great camera tricks that they're doing from 60 years ago, and it's from an era that you don't expect technical brilliance from. Um, so actually, yeah, I'm going to recommend that. I started saying I was, I, was, <laughs> I was thinking about recommending The Favorite because Emma Stone is just incredible. Um, but I'm going to go with Dark Passage. Cool. Yeah. Uh, I so the DP on this the sorry the director of photography on this film is uh, a guy named Emmanuel Lubezki, and he start first started working uh, with Alejandro and I think it was Itumama Tambien. Sounds right. Um, and he this this guy is an amazing cinematographer. He's done a lot of stuff, but he was the cinematographer on Gravity. Which I find to be one of my favorite rewatchable rewatchable space films, and there, this film was so centered in the cinematography, and so was Gravity. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this the, the, if you want to see an earlier example of um, Lubezki's work, uh, Gravity's you can't go wrong with any of the stuff on his IMDb page. But yeah. gra- Gravity's pretty fun. What about you, Todd? So my reco is going to be American History X, another Ed Norton film which, uh, I've, I, I, I don't think I can watch it again. Um, maybe I can, it's been a really long time. I think it's been probably about 15 years or so. I don't know. I think it was, uh, yeah, it looks like 98. Um, it just, it was my first introduction to Ed Norton and my God, it's, uh, it's, I mean, you just gotta watch it. I can't even say anything about it. Yeah. It's an unflinching film. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, stay tuned next week when we have Joe back. He'll be with us for the next couple episodes. And Yay. we're going to cover four things or for Christmas. None of Thanksgiving. <laughs> Thanksgiving. You son of a bitch. For Christmas. For Thanksgiving, we're going to cover. For Christmas, we're going to do Die Hard. It's the yeah. only Christmas movie that matters in my book. <laughs> <laughs> so stay tuned for next week uh, don't forget to subscribe and review us on iTunes uh, leave us a note if there's something you'd like us to cover uh, like today's episode was Birdman thanks to Izzy Izzy um, requested this one and he has another one coming up he's been amazing so he's going to get to pretty quick uh, but we'll do that other one when I get back to Austin because it's a it's a doozy <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to comment on this episode you can go to thepestlepodcast.com slash Birdman. <laughs> and we'll leave you with a quote of the day. This one's by Raymond Carver. Life and death matters, yes. And the question of how to behave in this world, how to go in the face of everything, 
Time is short and the water is rising. Wow. Mm. I love that. Man, that's a really good quote. Where'd you get this? Yeah, well... Where did you find this? Because he's the one who wrote the play that they're doing in the film in Birdman. Oh, wow. And so I was like, I wonder what kind of depressing shit he has to say. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he delivered over and over again. It, was, it became a really tough job of, like, picking one. But I thought this one, of course, was just as apt as any of the others. And... I think it, you know, is pretty succinct about discussing how we spend our time on Earth and the effervescence of life and the idea of, you know, carpe diem. You know, time is short and the water is rising. There is no excuse to not do what it is you want to do. There's nothing holding you back. There's no reason for you to spend a minute doing something that you're not in love with. Um, because at the end of the day, I mean, assuming, and I should add the asterisk, you know, if, if you're religious and you believe in an afterlife, maybe this isn't, you know, your cup of tea and that's fine. I totally understand. Uh, fight me in the comments, but, <laughs> but, you know, for me in my worldview, I'm agnostic and, uh, certainly lean more atheistic and, you know, this is all we get. This is our one shot and I want to spend it, you know, loving what I'm doing in life. And even if that means, you know, a few shitty moments, you know, that's okay. I'll take the shitty with, you know, the bitter with the, with the better. As the Brits say. Well said. I like it. I do too. All right, guys. So like Wes said before, next week for Thanksgiving, we are doing Die Hard. I'm really excited. Yippee-ki-yay. <laughs> so make sure to join us. Mother melon farmers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. He stole it. Uh, so please make sure to review us and subscribe uh, on iTunes. Uh, we need all of, the, all of those that we can get. And until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. And I'm Joe. Go watch some movies. Mm-hmm.